Well, hello and welcome to episode number 349 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos and in this week's show, Ryanair give money away. Yes, you heard me right, they give money away. Titan Airways gets some new IFE and a Japanese airline tells you to cut out meals on board to reduce waste don't quite know which waste they're on about and in the military a c-130 from a u.s advanced research agency fails to retrieve unmanned drones mid-air the mysterious f-117 nighthawk which is perhaps not as retired as we thought starts making its way to locations to be displayed so joining me this week as always in the peak uk master suite studios Absolutely cool as a goose this week because he is <laughs> under the influence of some wonderful cider. It is of course Matt Smith. You make me sound like an alcoholic. Honestly, <laughs> that's a terrible thing to sort of do. Uh, hello, mate. How are you? I'm good. Good. I, I, I haven't seen you on the uh, on the roads this week. I've missed. No, you. no, indeed. Oh no, I did see you at Stupid O'Clock one morning, and I did oh, give did you, you a wave. But uh, so I sleep. Uh, no, 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 no. You were driving. I'm oh, pleased okay. to say. <laughs> there was an alarming amount of lights coming my way, and I thought that has to be Carlos because I know I don't know anyone yeah. else who has so many LED lights in the front of their cab. Uh, I've never said anything like it. I mean, Christmas doesn't have nothing on Carlos and his truck. I tell you. <laughs> I know, I know, but it, it is my office away from home at the moment, so it has to be. Yes, but you don't have that many LED lights in. I mean, you've got your LED <laughs> lights around your window, but you don't have them all in your True. office, do you? Honestly. I know. Anyway, I mean, we're slightly off topic here. Perhaps we should concentrate on what's going on. I know. <laughs> anyway, joining us as well this week, it is the master of all things AV and tech, and of course, the hero of BA. It must be Neville Bounds. Yes, let's turn the volume up. That will make it better, won't it? <laughs> uh, having just given me that fantastic build-up. Yes, it's been a bit of a week uh, this week. Uh, started on Sunday evening with the uh, paramedics coming out to Mrs Nev. Oh. oh. Not because she's seen the uh, state of our bank account, but because she's had a bit of a moment. Uh, oh, no. I've got to say massive uh, congratulations to the folks from Thames Valley, uh, where I live here in Buckinghamshire, and they were here in about seven minutes. Uh, wow! So, wow! Uh, That's uh, incredible. And, and, okay, and, and, so yeah. Yeah, and how is Mrs. Nev? Is she on the mend? Uh, yes, she's just now halfway through a bottle of vodka, I believe. So oh, right. oh. okay, right. Oh yes, uh, yeah, yes, yeah, a kill or cure. Yes. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say Nev that, that that she'd discovered the the lack of Pinot Grigio in the uh, in the kitchen and kind of yes, there has been there has been a lack of it, but luckily uh, my company and a few other people have very generously sent me some more bottles, so we're we're going to be okay for the Christmas season. Indeed, a, a nice little selection of Malbec red wines and from a well-known uh, wine warehouse as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, not, not far away, not far away from me. Indeed, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yes, that's that's very good indeed. So mm. no, but uh, all good. So I finished work now for the year back and uh, on January. January the 4th, but plenty to do in the way of editing and other stuff here at home. So, uh, yeah. Actually, I was going to ask, before we move on to introduce our next amazing co-host, um, how is the editing going for the Christmas show that we recorded last week? Yeah, can we cross over that and move on? Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing yeah. the comment that we got last week, that it's going to take at least two days to edit the show. Yeah, but... actually, I had a lovely email from, from Andy from the A320 podcast, who also joined us for that very special event. And, uh, yes, yeah, so it was lovely to hear from him. Um, and then I told him politely to go away. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> there's, there's one element I'm struggling with, which was our song, which I, I, won't, I oh, won't spoil cool. any more than that. But, Funny, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm struggling to make it in any way vaguely tuneful. So it may just be not tuneful. Uh, 
And, and actually, don't long, forget long, guys and girls. Long story short, the track that we used, I couldn't get the rights to, <laughs> so I've had to use a different track, but it's a totally different key. So. <laughs> that that will, we, we hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll be releasing our Christmas show. Oh, no, Christmas I mean, it'll Day, be released so. on, on yeah. as usual, like on the Friday slash Sunday, but it's just, yeah, uh, yeah we, we're not 100% sure in what form. Anyway, we, should we, that's enough of that. Let's exactly. <laughs> so joining us as well this week from his glorious Charlotte studios with the sun beaming through his windows, oh, I might add. Dear. It's the legend that is Armando. Hey, guys. It is a beautiful day here. It has not been like this most of the week, actually, it's been terrible weather most of this week. So the only flying I got in, and this is going to be a funny story, uh, in, in military units, we usually have some kind of mascot. Uh, and in one of my units that I served in for four and a half years, the mascot was a falcon. So I'd like to introduce, this is Freddy. Freddy the falcon is hand carved out of wood. It's pretty heavy. And Freddy is actually on his way on a world tour. So he's going from location to location all the way around the world. And uh, the uh, only flying that I did this week was with Freddie here. We, we <laughs> borrowed an airplane from one of the local airports from a pilot. And we went up and did some nice aerobatic maneuvers. And I filmed Freddie and that forever will be in the history of that, that unit there out in New Mexico. Um, other than that, that was the highlight of my week. Do you know, I mean, sometimes, Armando, I mean, it's like your life is the most <laughs> awesome so slash boring. bizarre life like ever. I mean, it's just like, I mean, did you ever have I'll time? I'll go with for, bizarre. Yeah, well, all right, we'll go with bizarre. Yeah, okay. Did you ever, did you ever have time for actually being in the military? Because you don't seem to, have, you know, it's like, I don't know how you squeezed it all in before. <laughs> uh, it was just as bizarre when I was in the military. You can ask anybody that was in. It's every day is borderline absurd or bizarre. In a good way. <laughs> oh, well, that, that's good. But, uh, and and, and ha- a subject of family, obviously, because it is sort of approaching Christmas time and that. How is lovely the lovely Megan? She is very well. She's actually over there listening, and I think she's she may be in the chat room. Or not, is but, she? Uh, oh, I wouldn't she surprise does me. Keep, she does keep tabs on us. She, she does enjoy this show above all the other podcasts. Of course, absolutely. It's an excellent taste, you see. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. And how about Maddie? Is, is, is she finished for school now? She's for done. Holidays. She's got... 17 days of straight oh. parenting. Oh, I mean, wow. she, uh, straight Christmas break. Right. Yeah, so. <laughs> wow. Okay, good luck with that. You'll, you'll be We've... both exhausted in minutes. <laughs> yeah. You know. Nah, she's great. Actually, uh, uh, she's looking forward to it. And she actually already misses her friends in school. So. Aww. See, yeah. see, I, I, did, I didn't really have friends in school, so I, I literally couldn't wait to get home, to yeah. be honest with you. But uh, I didn't either because I was an av geek back then. Yeah, oh, so, oh, oh, fair enough. I, I mean, I was an av geek, but in a totally different field. Uh, you know, <laughs> we're talking audiovisual in my world. But anyway, there we yeah. go. But look at us. We've all blossomed into the swans that we are today. It, well, that, that is true. That is true. Uh, uh, now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to. It, it wouldn't be PTUK without me having to say something to Armando about his audio. Because, and now I feel bad because I asked him to turn it up. <laughs> no, it was quite good. no, it's too loud. It's too loud. Okay, yeah, going anyway. back down. That's lovely. Oh, you are, you are super. I say, as I say, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be the start of the show without me complaining to Armando about his audio. So there we go. <laughs> so we shall, have. Uh, yeah, oh. Shall we move on? Yeah, yes, we have. Good um, call. We, yes, we have a special guest, but we're going to wait to reveal our special guest until we get to our commercial. Segment. Okay. Yes. But uh, Nev, you've got uh, a slight bit of information, haven't you, in our weekly roundup this week? 
Yes, um, you know what a big fan of BA I am and, um, you know, how I like flying on the aircraft. There's an announcement uh, this week that they're chopping a lot of the long-haul routes uh, for next year and, uh, as is normal with the media, they don't quite <laughs> get it right. So when we talk about BA and long-haul, we're thinking 777s, <laughs> 787s, A350s and uh, Matt is now going to bring up uh, the headline uh, <laughs> when we see a picture of an A319. Now, mm -hmm. I'm going to give a bit of license there because obviously the A318 did go to uh, JFK via Shannon and back. But uh, yeah, I think we could have had a, an A350 or a Dreamliner in there, really, couldn't we? I think you're being a bit too, I think you're being a bit too generous, Nev, if I'm honest with you. Cause I would have also should've... said we could have had a 747, even though they're all retired, but at least that kind of, you know, <laughs> well, yes, absolutely. A lot more aircraft. <laughs> yeah. At least it did do the routes that you're referring to. Right. Yeah, quite. Oh, well, never mind. Hey ho, all part of the fun. Yep. Well, next week they'll be running a story on their short haul fleet of A380s. So, That's it, yes. there we go. <laughs> so, we're uh, going to acknowledge everyone in the chat room this week, all the uh, chat room members who have joined. Oh, uh, in. Uh, by the way, actually, although Captain Crew, sorry to interrupt, I'm sorry, Carlos, uh, saying that apparently Air Canada used to fly the A319 into Heathrow. They did, yes, that's right. Oh, OK. Does that mean uh, we owe the BBC an apology? Yeah, but they, so, they made 20 uh, stops on the way here. So, you know, <laughs> Oh, well, OK. All right, sorry. I'll, I'll carry on, Carlos. Pretend I didn't... And, and welcome. <laughs> and welcome to everyone who has joined us in the chat room tonight. We're going to mention uh, Lee Davis. Hello to you, Lee Davis. Uh, Stephen H. Uh, we've got... Uh, let me scroll down a bit further. Richard Adams. Hello to you, Richard. Mazus Karim. Hello, Mazus. Uh, Sophie Locke, who actually is David, because David's logged in on Sophie's computer. So, um, yeah, we'll say hello to Sophie and David uh, in Spain. So I hope things are nice and warm there. Uh, Matt C. Hello to you, Matt. Uh, we've got uh, Masha. Hello to you, Masha. Uh, we've got, uh, I don't want to miss anyone out, Ali O. Um, let me scroll down. Jacob Darlington Brown. It must be about oh, two in the morning. Yeah, I can say it's it's like must in be Australia. five a.m. or something silly at yeah, the moment in yeah. Australia. Uh, Nick Codling, hello to you, Nick, and obviously the the man that is Lane Street in the chat room. We couldn't do a show without having Brace Lane yourselves. in the <laughs> chat room. <laughs> Here comes uh, Evan, the humour. <laughs> Evan Shoe, whatever time is it? Where you are, Evan? Oh wow. Blimey, dedication, honestly, to the show is um, time, him, very good. Yeah, well, yes, absolutely. Breakfast radio, that's what we are this morning. <laughs> so don't forget, uh, if you don't already subscribe to the show and you're listening to the show as an audio podcast and you want to watch what the chaos is that goes on with the live show... My advice would be don't. Uh, <laughs> go over to our YouTube page, look for us on there, youtube.com forward slash plain talking UK. Don't forget to click that subscribe button and hit the bell icon, which is right next door to that, to be notified when we're live and recording the new episodes and then you'll be able to join us in the live chat room and have your name mentioned on the show as well so um yeah we've got loads to get through in the show some great segments and obviously our special guest who we're going to speak to in a moment so if everyone's ready we're going to do some commercial news so we're going to start the show then as we do each week with our rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the uk so if all the team's ready yeah we are ready let's go <laughs> Well, kicking off this week's first news story, very, very good news story, this one. 
And uh, headline, new consortium to support Faraday, build 300 sustainable aircraft by 2030. In an exciting week for the aviation industry, with Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates showing their support for sustainable aviation, Faraday, who you might have seen us, we had an interview a few weeks back on the show, been running the series, uh, the aerospace is des- uh, delighted to reveal uh, a powerful consortium of partners to bring back large-scale aircraft production to the UK. But... I'm not going to bother to carry on reading this story because uh, we have a very special guest joining us on the show tonight. And it gives me a great pleasure to welcome onto the show. Uh, you may have seen him on the interview with me, uh, which me and Nev done a few weeks back. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you, that's Neil Cloughley from Faraday. Hello, Neil. How are you? Uh, good morning. Good evening. Good afternoon. Which, which is it? It's a long day. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, hello. It is where you are. I mean, you, it's, <laughs> it's, it's quarter past seven and you're essentially still in the office, my friend, honestly. <laughs> It's been a busy week. It's been a busy week, yeah. but it's been a very good week. So, so, to be here. Yeah, so, so tell, tell us why. I mean, we have this amazing press release that, that we had genuine, as I say, because when we, when we do our show notes, um, we, we scour like the, the, the wires, if you like, for, for aviation stories. And we were delighted when we saw this come up on, on our feed. Um, so as you say, it's been a big week for you, uh, Neil. Uh, what, what's happened? Well, I mean, basically, uh, though sharp-eyed amongst the watchers of the interview previously might have just picked up a few clues that I dropped into that, which was <laughs> we had some uh, news coming. And it's basically, since we moved here on the 1st of September, we, we've been going gangbusters. I mean, we've been working very, very hard to get the key partners that we need to the program um, because basically there were a number of elements that we needed to work around. So things like the turbine, the electric motors, the avionics, um, who's going to be doing test and evaluation, who's going to work through the certification with us, who's going to work with us on the hybridization of linking the turbines, the electric motors, et cetera. So these are all key elements of the partnership program, which we were working on. Um, I'm delighted to say that we were able to secure fabulous partners to the program, um, to bring in Honeywell, one of the world's leading AV aerospace companies, just fantastic for us to, to achieve that. We have Magnex, probably the market leader right now in terms of uh, electric motors and the flight testing, the amount of hours that they're putting on their motors. Uh, we have Cambridge consultants uh, and Cambridge have just been working on a whole range of things recently. In fact, a lot of experience in hybrid propulsion. Uh, I think they're working on the stratospheric UAV platform uh, doing a hybrid propulsion system. And Nova Systems. Uh, Nova Systems, obviously, uh, test and evaluation, design certification company, guys who are going to be actually flying the BHAR um, so Tim Butler can't wait to get his hands on this thing and actually get it flying. So yeah, basically what it means is we've now got the turbine, we've got the motors, so we can now complete the design optimization of the aircraft. We can start packaging around that before we get into the structural engineering properly next year to, to really start digging into the aircraft. But um, very, very exciting. It's been a really tough year for a lot of people in aerospace. So the ability for us to announce that and more importantly, the plan going forward. So making it very clear of what we intend to do by 2030. So we've set out that the first portfolio is going to be 300 aircraft. And out of that, we break that down into 150 of those are going to be firefighting uh, variants oh, of the wow. aircraft. And the reason why we've done that, it's, it's all very well people building sustainable aircraft. And that's great. It's then how you manufacture in a sustainable way. But if we actually look at what's going on at the moment globally with wildfires, we have got a huge ecological destruction process going on every year, and it's getting worse. Um, I think 
this year in California, the guys had dropped over 11 million tons of retardant fighting fire. So if we can be a little bit more tactical in that, if we can start employing uh, pairing processes of UAV with aircraft like ours, where we can be preventative, we can actually get in there when the wildfire is young and embryonic and try and put it out before it becomes the 20,000 hectare monster. Um, then if that's some saving that we can have in fossil fuel emissions just by doing that, fabulous. The fact that we're doing it with a sustainable aircraft, even better. And of course, it's COP26 next year for the UK. So with all the, the support that British government is putting towards sustainability, then it's, it's very, very exciting. So that's about a production rate of about 60 aircraft per year from 2026 onwards. Um, we're very, very excited. It's, uh, it's, it's a good time to, to be in this sector. And Neil, I actually have a quick question about that. The, so that's great to hear that you're getting into the firefighting industry, especially because you guys are doing it from a clean sheet design. I know when I lived out west and I was just talking about New Mexico, uh, traditionally firefighting aircraft are, are really old. You know, I saw some Navy P2Vs, some World War II air, aircraft out there, uh, some 146s, uh, DCs. I mean, there's, th these are things that are, are becoming maintenance hogs right now. So what... Uh, or, or I guess, how did you guys arrive at that particular mission uh, as being something that you wanted to attack, to use a fire pun? Um, and, and, and how are you going to integrate that into your, into your design process? Well, interesting enough, the, the idea and rationale behind it actually came from the military perspective. We were looking at something. Uh, if you remember, there's a, there was a mission in 03 uh, in GW2 where basically I think it was – uh, one of the was it sixth cav, I think, went against Medina Division with the Apaches, and they flew from Q8, and they were due to link up with their ground convoy um, at a FARP, get refueled, and head to the target area. Well, of course, I think the the ground crew, the convoy, got caught up in somewhere like Kabbalah. Uh, so the flight of Apaches flew over the head of them. They land in the middle of the desert, way behind enemy lines, and no fuel. So they get out with nine mil pistols ready to defend multi-million dollar helicopters should anybody turn up. And that actually got me thinking. I mean, it was one of the things we were thinking about with the aircraft from a refueling perspective. The ability to put an aircraft in with helicopters, for example, short field environment where they can tank off it and then carry on. And so that sort of evolved. And of course, having lived in California, been there and seen the problem of wildfires and also actually uh, seeing the guys when they first did the DC-10 conversions, uh, and hearing about their stories. I mean, it's fascinating to hear. Uh, a California redwood, basically, when it gets to a certain temperature, it detonates like a bomb. And what you end up with is about 10 surface-to-air missiles winging their way towards you, 16-foot logs, sort of four-foot wide. And they took one. The test DC-10, if I remember, took a, one of these strikes through the leading edge of the wing. So, of course, what that means is you've got to then operate at a certain height for safety reasons, etc., so if you're having to go up higher, you're now losing a lot of your retardant over a hot fire because of the evaporation. So thinking about, well, if, we've, if we're going to do the architecture for refueling, then it's not that different to do the architecture for the firefighting element. And so we intend to work with companies that are extremely experienced in the firefighting kit. And basically, with the heavy payload capability of the aircraft, we can actually carry more payload than the helicopters but if we can approach it differently. So like I say, we're looking at having observation of wildfires in their infancy. 
then go and bombard it. So if you've got aircraft that can operate from small airfields closer to the scene of the fire with the retardant lined up in containers, sort of LD3 sized, we then basically have the aircraft on fleet on mass there. They load up, they go and hit on repetitive cycle. But we're hopefully going to be doing this unmanned at some point. So then you can remove the pilot risk element, get more aircraft plotting on an autonomous flight path, ideally, so they just keep hitting the same spot over and over again. And then reload up again. By the time they get back to the nearby airfield, the containers are all reloaded. They load it back in again and they hit it again. So you've just got this constant cycle. By doing this, not only do we then save the bigger aircraft for where we need them on the, the big fires, but you can contain areas. You can basically test new technologies. So, for example, we'll be looking to use our autonomous flight systems as part of this. And if you can prove it in that environment where nobody is going to complain about having an autonomous aircraft near them because that aircraft could be saving their lives by stopping the fire from getting to the house, then those technologies will advance and will eventually get to a point in the civilian world where we can use some of those technologies for things like eVTOL, UAM, et cetera. So there's an awful lot of benefits. Um, and it was just a logical step for us to, to go for that because, as you say, a lot of the aircraft are older. Uh, and if we're going to fight wildfires, why not do it with a sustainable aircraft as well? Absolutely. I, I, I wish you guys the best of luck. And we're, you know, for us, we're going to be following it closely here at PTK. I, I did, there was one question in the chat room that uh, you mentioned Magnix as sort of a, a leading company out there in, in electric propulsion. Um, so we did a story on them a little while ago. I, I, I believe it was a, a year ago now where they were flying um, de Havilland products with electric motors out for Harbor Air, I believe. Um, and I know they had a demonstrator, uh, Cessna Caravan. So how did you arrive in a partnership with them? And how did you choose their, their propulsion system for your, for your aircraft? A um, number of reasons. Uh, we've obviously been in this business now since, what, 2014. So I think we're one of the longer-serving regional air mobility companies. And so seeing Magnix come into the market, I've known Roe for a long time. We've watched what they're doing. They're developing fantastic products. More importantly, they're flight testing and they're getting them out there. And so by the time that our aircraft's ready, we're hopeful that there's going to be a fully type certified electric motor there to plug straight into the airplane. So that's important because we'll have a certified turbine. And so what we're trying to do is to de-risk an awful lot of the element of this program. And most importantly, they have the power. We're talking about some seriously powerful capability in their Magni 500 electric motors, of which we're going to have two of those. Um, so yeah, it's really about the amount of power available from their motor, the fact that it, it is one of the best motors out there right now, and the company is, is pushing forward. So a great company to work with, and we're delighted to partner with them. I'll give you a little bit of irony, and, and that is we did that episode. Where our producer is not on with us today. He's great at this stuff. But that particular episode was kind of our going green episode, and we did a story both on Magnix, and that was the first time that we had uh, talked about Faraday on on our podcast. And from that, I had sent off two emails, if you remember, and one went to you guys and one went to Magnix and you guys were actually the first ones to respond, which is how we ended up where we are today. So thank you for responding to that email. Absolute pleasure. <laughs> it's a delight to be here. And like I say, we enjoyed chatting here at Duxford and uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's an exciting period. Um, uh, they say that things happen eventually and all things come to those who wait and everything else. But uh, one thing that's quite fun is on Monday, it is the birthday. I'm not going to say which birthday it is, but apparently Saturn and Jupiter are aligning and they will be the closest to the <laughs> Earth at that point. So it seems that everything's aligning for us right now and it's, it's an exciting time. I'm just going to take a few quick questions from the um, chat room, Neil. Hmm. 
um, from David, aka Sophie. Uh, he's asking the boss, what's the? He says, what's the aim for the takeoff distance, landing distance required for the aircraft? Uh, it's going to have to be 300 meters, Sophie. Sorry, Dave. Um, and the reason is is because. Uh, one of the key requirements, one of the operational capabilities we always wanted to solve was the logistical issue going out to our new aircraft carriers. So if our aircraft was taking off longer than 300 meters, it would drop into the drink off the end of the uh, carrier because we obviously don't have cats and traps. Um, the beautiful thing about having electric propulsion, and, and this is where we differ slightly from a lot of projects out there. We see this as a stepping stone process. The Bihar will be a full net zero cable aircraft in the fullness of time. What we've decided to do is to have the electric motors in the back end, get that certified, get the aircraft certified with something that is tangible and real today that requires no infrastructure wherever we go and operate. So that means using the turbine effectively, an APU. So take the APU out the tail of an A350 and put it in our aircraft. That provides the power to the electric motors we can run that on sustainable aviation fuel. So that's the propulsion bit. So you get that instantaneous torque capability at the back end with the electric motors. Obviously you have much fewer working parts with electric motors. So you're looking at sort of 30,000 hour cycle inspection maybe. But also when you've got the landing gear electrified as well for taxiing around the ground, because let's face it, uh, it is long past time that airports started deploying electric tugs. Uh, it's easy. It should be done. It's, it's a, such an easy win right now where we could be reducing an awful lot of emissions on the ground at airports. But if you've actually got the electric motor in the landing gear as well, then you can obviously use that to take off as well. So you're using that to thump you off down the runway with the propulsion of the back end. That means with the flight profile, we've got the lift profile, the aircraft's going to jump off very quickly. Like I say, it has to, otherwise we're going swimming. So that was just one application for that, but also looking from a military perspective, again, if you're going into uh, environments where you might drop onto a logistics onto a, a small road somewhere, it's very important. But also if you look at logistics from the civilian perspective. So if you look at some of the great big warehouses that are the big uh, uh, Amazon warehouses and things like that, I mean, they're huge, sort of almost close to half a kilometer long, some of these things now. So if we can now get an aircraft that can drop in and out of a genuinely short space, we can now start opening up flight profiles in areas where there isn't an airfield or there has never been flight operations before because it's quiet, it takes off and lands in a short distance and basically enables us to lift a heavy payload in that zone. So 300 meters is the target and goal. That's what we call stall, uh, short takeoff and landing. And if we can do that, then we're in great shape. Uh, Charlie White in the chat room uh, asks a good one because obviously you're going to be manufacturing this here in the UK. Uh, Charlie asks, what sorts of opportunities do you think there'll be for young and old engineers in the UK? Lots. I mean, here's the interesting. And congrats to Charlie because I think Charlie just got an award, if I remember right. He's been, he's been given an award of some sort. So congrats to him for that. Um, I just saw that pop up in my LinkedIn feed, I think, just before we came on. Look, one of the key things about the moment is whilst the industry has taken a right pounding, that means that we have got a huge number of highly talented people in this country who have come out of some of the bigger companies who are now looking for work. Now, how exciting is it the fact that we've actually now got a future path for a British aircraft uh, manufacturer in the UK? We can be looking to employ an awful lot of these people. But equally, because of some of the new technologies that we're doing, what we're looking to do is to marry some of that experience 
with some of the younger generation because things like 3D printing, uh, some of the new materials, things that we're going to be deploying in the aircraft long term, uh, a lot of that is, is being taught now to the next generation of engineers coming through. But equally, the one thing you never get rid of fully is the sage minds and wisdom that have been there, done it, and worked on a whole range of programs. So the ability to marry a lot of the older engineers in terms of they've been there, done that, and understood it, but without necessarily bringing in those who think, well, this is the only way that we can do this. Uh, we used to use block of iron and wood and two years worth of wind tunnels and God knows what. For those who are prepared to realize that the younger generations are taking on the mantle of a lot of these engineers, it's, it's quite exciting because I'm, I'm keen to see how we can get that marriage going between the young guys and the old guys uh, to, to produce something that is not only incredibly safe, it's innovative and it supports job growth across the UK. So another one from uh, David, actually, David, because uh, David, or Sophie, Sophie. Uh, David is actually a pilot himself over in Spain. And he asks a very good question, actually. Um, what do you expect the pilot licensing requirements to be? Are they specific for electric motors? Interesting question, because what you get into is a about single propulsion, multi-engine propulsion. So the thing that the authorities have got to get their heads around is if you've got single lever operation, you're considering it single pilot operation. Um, the fact that an aircraft might have distributed propulsion in terms of the electric motors, so let's say it's got eight motors on the wing. Traditionally, your mindset would say, well, it's a multi-engine license straight off the bat. But is it? Because if your core power generation to those motors is a single lever operation, i.e. it doesn't matter that you've got eight, they're all operating at the same throttle at the same time, et cetera. That now means that the industry is pushing for the fact that you can have single lever operation, even though it's considered a couple of motors, for example. Um, but the proof is in the pudding at the end of the day. I mean, ultimately, we've been pushing for revised Part 23 regulations to simplify the whole process of certifying aircraft in the first instance. We are having to sort of educate the authorities a little bit that they're looking at this and saying, okay, we can't consider this a multi-engine license because what we're looking to do, we're looking to reduce costs. We're looking to give pilots the opportunity to fly lower down on the rung of the ladder before they then migrate up into the, the bigger industries and the multi-engine license environment. So it is a challenge, but it is possible. They are looking at it. There's an awful lot of power from an awful lot of people guiding the regulators to say, yes, this is a single lever, single pilot operation type scenario. Uh, we're not looking for multi-engine license setting on this because if it is, it becomes very expensive, which defeats the whole point of what we're trying to do here, which is reduce cost to increase air mobility and make the whole experience cheaper and more affordable for the many, not just the few. This is not about private aviation of people having their own private jet swing around. This is about the ability to go from city to city at low cost. So we're saying, so London to Manchester, 25 pounds each way. If we can hit that marker, I guarantee you, we'll fill every seat on this airplane as it goes back and forth because you're in Manchester in 45 minutes. Uh, that type of pairing, these types of scenarios mean that you've got to keep these costs down as much as possible, which means ideally single pilot, single lever operation. Yeah, I, I, Neil, I can't, I can't tell you enough how excited I am about your guys' effort here because it, it, that's exactly it, right? If you can make it cheaper and easier for pilots to get into it and operating costs and, you know, I, I think a lot of the multi-engine multi training 
revolves around aerodynamics and, and uh, critical engines and all these things, but you are, you're completely removing all of that. And, and, and that's the difference between multi-engine certifications and single engines. And I know there's plenty of operators that are commercial operators doing single engines, which is traditionally known as the stepping stone to, to commercial aviation. I love it. I love everything that you guys are doing. Uh, before Carlos uh, jumps in with more, I, I, I got to admit, like, we may we may actually have to have you on as a substitute for me in the military segment because you're talking about farps farps cats and traps um which are forward area rearming and refueling points and and you know the 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 wires on an aircraft carrier so i'm going to go ahead and take a two week vacation and and neil you can come on but 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 no personally for, from from me and I, and I i know a lot of our listeners you know we talk about innovation in aviation and and really from, from, from the early 1900s, that, that first decade in the 1900s, there's been very few uh, just stars aligning innovative moments. You know, you could, you could argue that, that the piston engine and then the jet engine and then maybe composite con- construction. But I think you guys are, are absolutely more aviation puns on the leading edge of, of being a, the true next frontier in aviation. And, and I just hope that you guys can make this work because... Um, man, you're going to be, you're going to be just, uh, well, a regular on the show. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Finger, I mean, yeah. it'd be great because I think the interesting thing is the technologies are being proven now. There was, there's an awful lot of doubters that looked at the sector. I remember sort of uh, three years ago, even really before the whole Uber Elevate thing started kicking off. Uh, and a lot of people saying, oh, this is nonsense, never going to work. And to be fair, there were a number of propositions that people were putting forward, which you would look at, and you think, there's just no way you can do that. And you can't do it in the time frame you're suggesting. But I think what we've done and what we've tried to be very careful about is picking a very structured approach to this, making it a tiered process that it's around technologies that are proven. It's around a principle that can migrate us into this era rather than the, the traditional worst case scenario, which is somebody leaps ahead, does something, does something stupid, uh, it crashes, it burns, it does whatever, and it puts the industry back 10, 20 years. What we're doing is incremental steps, which prove that, yeah, I mean, we know we've got turbine technology, we've got APUs, they generate electrical power. Great. We know that the electric motors work and they're extremely efficient. Marrying that is just a natural easy win. A serial hybrid works very well. So I think that if we can just keep this approach going, there is going to be lots of stuff coming. I mean, if you look at what some of the EV guys, Joby, for example, I mean, fair play to the guys there. They've done a fabulous job in what they've produced. Uh, Joe Ben's a very smart guy. Their acquisition of Elevate, I think, one of the deals of the year. Um, for them to be getting funds into the company and taking on that platform, which has got a, a fairly wide spread, uh, that's a great bit of business right there. Um, but again, eVTOL and UAM has got a, a number of areas that they're going to have to overcome challenges-wise. But as these networks start picking up, so if you're looking, you've got Joby talking about having a network of operations, Volocopter are talking about a network of operations, Lilium, I think, are talking about a network as well. And we're doing the same sort of thing. This is not rocket science. This is something that, uh, in terms of our approach with our aircraft of getting out there and owning the asset and the portfolio, Elon Musk proved this. He proved it with SpaceX 18 years ago when he's approaching people who said, don't be ridiculous, go away, nonsense, you can't do this. Who are you to tell us how to launch rockets better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, guess what? Many of those people are now customers of his. He was right. And the, the great thing is innovation comes 
with an awful lot of people that say you can't do it, an awful lot of people who think you're not experienced enough to do it. Um, and good grief. I mean, we've, we've seen this in the past. Mitchell, uh, Whittle, Barnes-Wallace, Rowe, de Havilland, all these guys, a lot of people encounter these same mentalities, which is it's very easy to come up with 20 reasons why you can't do something. But wouldn't it be better if, as the American view is, and having lived there, that's what I, I came to understand is, let's look at the 20 reasons why we can do something. We know we're going to encounter a few problems along the way, um, but let's get out there, let's do it. But so long as you do it sensibly, so long as you've got the right people coming in, the right partners, the right experience, yeah, it is exciting. It's, it's a period where I think we're entering a 10-year period of innovation. Uh, we call it the electric jet age. Um, and yeah, it's, it's good. I'm very, very excited right now. Indeed. I mean, you speak sort of very passionately about the, the subject, which is just so refreshing to hear, really, uh, Neil. And uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach a slightly unusual question here in the fact. Now, I mean, I, I work uh, for a, a wine company and there's something happening at the end of this year, which is obviously potentially quite a game changer for a lot of people so i'm going to say the word brexit if anybody needs to change you know charge their glasses or something like that uh, but I, I mean it in a genuine genuine sort of like uh genuinely like i mean what kind of impact is that potentially going to have on on your current plan um pick words very carefully here neil uh <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, you could, you could, you know, you could write the, the Fifth Amendment and say no abort if you wish. I won't be at all offended. But it, I'm just intrigued because I say, I, 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 I say, I use the company that I, I work for as an example because obviously a lot of our product come from what they call the old world as far as wine is concerned. Obviously, and that thing that's happening will have a massive impact on the way that we do business with the rest of the world, uh, mainly Europe, but also the, the rest of the world. You know, new world, new world wines and things, not an issue. But obviously, with what we were expecting you know it's it uh, the trouble is we we still don't know obviously even at this late stage what impact that's going to have i mean that must be quite a challenge for you to to plan when um when you're you're involved in such a huge project um it is and it isn't um to a certain degree i mean one of the interesting things is the fact that if we look back in our recent past we have become very comfortable with a percentage of a program um I've never been a big fan of that. Uh, if you look at how we're pushing forward bold projects like the Tempest, for example, I mean, the fact that the UK is going to design its own aircraft now, uh, but it's now actively seeking partners to come in and join on that program. Well, I mean, that's perfectly sensible because that's what we're good at. We, we have had some of the most innovative aircraft in history. The fact that we have for the greater good of a wider project community uh, taken on a, a position where we say, okay, well, we'll accept 10% of this or we'll take 5% of that. Um, how interesting is it that you can have the whole pie and then turn to your partners and say, ah, oh, what piece of the pie would you like? Um, that's exciting. So from, from a British perspective, I can understand why an awful lot of people are quite excited by it. I can understand why people are fearful of things like funding, et cetera. But, when you look at how the rest of the world trades, if you look at how we trade with America, if you look at how we've traded with Canada, the world is not going to stop in January. Everybody will trade the way they always have done. Obviously, with the EU, there's going to be a different relationship. But I mean, I think common, common minds have to be sensible here. 
the, the simple process is if somebody says, we're going to hit you with a tariff, guess what? That tariff comes back at you. Um, is that sensible? No. Uh, do people in the UK want to trade with Europe? Of course. Um, we are Europeans. We are part of Europe. But equally, we're a sovereign nation. And I think that what an awful lot of people are, are saying is, look, we, we are very friendly towards Europeans. We want to be part of Europe. We want to trade with Europe. Let's not beat each other over the head with a club um, just because we happen to have made a decision that we're going down our own path right now. Uh, and I hope, I actually hope that there is going to be some form of common ground, compromise, if you like, where we can look and be sensible about what we're doing, where both parties respect each other's positions, um, and we'll get through it. We'll sort it out. Is it going to be bumpy? Yes. Are there going to be challenges? Yes. Long term, I think it'll all work itself out. Absolutely. Uh, Nev, you've got a couple of questions. Yes, just a quick question for you, Neil. Um, one of the things that's been very obvious uh, since we did the interview up at Duxford at your office there, the number of people that have said to us how enthusiastic you are about the project, which is undeniable. Uh, fantastic levels of enthusiasm and commitment. But you know what projects are like, don't you? They have bumps in the road, they have challenges, they have disappointments. Have you ever got to the stage during this period uh, since you started the whole thing back in 2014 uh, just by going, oh, I'm just going to have to get a proper job uh, uh, and do something else because it's just too much? Uh, yeah, there are, there are stories I won't share here right now in terms of personal costs to this program. Um, it is brutal. Uh, for anybody who has, has ever started a business, they will understand the challenges that that brings. To start an aerospace company uh, is even harder. To do it in an environment where there isn't, I mean, it's a little bit different in America. There, there, is a, there is that willingness to back. There's that willingness to put money in and to give you that chance and opportunity. If you've got a good concept and a good idea and you can prove you've got experienced guys around you and you can push on, people will back you. Here, it's, it's a real challenge here. So, yeah, there have been times when you're looking at spending your budget, your weekly shopping budget of 40 quid for the week. Um, and the reason is because you're putting money into IP and lawyers and things like that and, and all sorts of additional costs that you've got to do. That puts in a massive strain on families. It's a huge strain. There are days that you want to beat your head against the wall. You encounter people that should be giving you all the support in the world. They should be encouraging you. And all they do is sit there and do their level best to cripple you. And you just think, I don't understand it. I don't get it. It's, it's a brutal task to do. It's highs and lows. When you get the highs, it's fantastic. When you get the lows, by God, I mean, it, it really does beat the hell out of you. And, and I saw it with my father as well. I saw some fantastic highs with him, but I also saw spanners being thrown across the workshop at the factory and, and people getting really frustrated with certain things and it is difficult and yes yeah, so without doubt as we said we discussed when we were at Duxford we almost ended up in America at the beginning of this year I mean COVID sort of interrupted that but we were close to to moving offshore um, I am so happy to be here uh, having IWM Imperial War Museums at, and Duxford here and Gonville Keys College they saw what we're working on. They understood the market. They understood the opportunity. And to give us the opportunity to come and base ourselves here as such a historic airfield, um, 
it was such an easy decision. I mean, it really was. But what you're looking for, you're looking for that encouragement. You're looking for those people who say, you know what? Everything that you have said for the last six years has come to pass. It's clear you guys seem to know what you're talking about. Let's give you the leg up. Let's go. Um, to have people do that, and with some of the partners that we've now got on board doing that and endorsing the program, it's a huge boost. It is a massive boost because otherwise there are times when, as you say, you sort of look and you think, oh, I just can't do that. But interestingly, book I'm reading right now. Trials, troubles, and what is that? Triplanes. Yep. <laughs> Trials, <laughs> troubles, and triplanes. It is a book. Fantastic. By uh, Philip Jarrett, and it is about Elliot Verdon Rose's fight to fly. Wow. Uh, and it's interesting because he's gone through the same things. Sopwith went through the same things. These guys are doing things that you're encountering today, and you can actually get some. You get some boost from that because you think, God, it's not just us. Other people have been through it in the past. So, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And I've read more and more about Whittle's challenges. I've listened to some of the things he did. I've seen the challenges that uh, Sidney Cam, Mitchell, all these guys have had. And you sort of look at that and you think, yep, I, I know that, been through that experience. But, hell, at the end of the day, we've got a letter of support from the Secretary of State for Transport, which is fabulous. He's given us a, a big glowing report. I saw it two years ago. Um, we've sat with Secretary of State for Defense last year. We've got the support of the chair of the Intelligence Committee. I mean, there are an awful lot of people that get what it is that we're trying to do. Um, and yeah, it's, it keeps you going. It's, it's the carrot and the stick. Uh, <laughs> if you don't keep going after the carrot, you take the stick and you beat it over your head a few times, and then you, you keep chasing after the carrot again. <laughs> it's very simple. That's fantastic. Well, uh, Neil, I think that's a perfect... Uh, place to end and I, I think actually Richard Adams has got a great comment here he's saying uh, at least when things get tough you can go outside and look up and it, let's be honest at Duxford there is no better place to be than to be outside and take a look up I mean uh, words fail me Neil I'm so excited about the project that you've got ahead of you and we literally cannot wait to hear all about this amazing story because I don't know I've got a good feeling about this I think this is gonna I think this is going to be a magical thing I really do can I, can I just point out that this view behind me on my green screen here, right? That is a, that is actually sort of part of the view from Neil's office. Oh, Dutchman. is it? All oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, I am right. literally looking at the tail of that Monarch aircraft sitting there. The VC tens off to the right. The little uh, Trilanders outside. The Viscounts there. So yeah, it's uh, it's a great view. It's the old squadron leader's office. Is what I meant. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, well, we're going to take a little bit of a, a quick break here while we just have a quick chat with uh, Neil. So why don't you guys go away and enjoy the next episode of our fabulous series of Plain Truth. And this week, we are talking about the language of aviation. Welcome to another Plain Truths. And this week, we're going to be talking about the language of aviation. Joining me, as always, in the hot seat is the legend that is Captain Al. Hi, Captain Al. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? Yes, I'm not too bad, thank you. So, anyone who has ventured into the world of aviation will know that the language can be quite complex. Uh, there is so much jargon and there's acronyms and we always hear pilots and controllers using the phonetic alphabet. So, how does the aviation industry avoid confusion, especially with so many languages all around the world? I mean, obviously, I speak English, I know you speak English, but obviously there's French pilots, German pilots and all that kind of thing. I mean, is there like a like a common language as far as... as, as 
as speaking to air traffic controllers and everything is concerned? Uh, primarily, yes. So ICAO, which is uh, part of the United Nations that deals with civilian aviation, the overall governing body for the whole of the world with regards to aviation, actually lays down rules that says that there are six official languages for aviation. Wow, okay. Uh, English is the the one that is uh, probably the most prevalent. Uh, Do you want to take a guess at the other five? Okay, all right. Well, I I think I'm going to say that French is in there, I think. Okay, so English, French, Spanish. Okay. Russian... Russian, wow. Chinese, so we'll, we'll say Mandarin for that, okay. and Arabic right. are the six officially recognised languages. Now, having said that, ICAO do try to encourage communications between pilots on the radio to be done in English, and that's pretty much where it's done most of the time. Uh, In Spain, uh, Spanish pilots will talk to each other in Spanish. Uh, In France, unfortunately, there's uh, an act of parliament or goes higher up than that that basically mandates that French people have to speak to French people in French, um, which has been a bone of contention and a cause of more than one accident in France. But basically, the majority of communication is done in English where possible. Now, as you can imagine, if you're Russian and you're talking to a Russian air traffic controller in Russia, then you might as well use Russian. And indeed, that's exactly what happens. That's basically it. Documents can be produced in any one of those six languages, and then they are translated to the other five. And you can imagine the fun that is had with that. Yes, yes. (laughs) With regards to communicating we do try to keep it in english because everybody is effectively then on the same song sheet if you like so it doesn't matter whether it's your mother tongue or whether it's a a language that you've learned we have phraseology set words that we use so that everybody understands what we're trying to communicate regardless of their ability to speak that language as a conversational item. So, 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 this, so you, this is very much like the jargon, if you like, that's used in, in yeah, Asian to refer yeah. to specific um, events yeah. and things like that. Absolutely. So we have set phraseology. It doesn't matter whether you've got the ability to order six pints of beer in English. That's irrelevant. <laughs> Always a must. It's, <laughs> it's, it's can you communicate with other pilots in air traffic control? Right. So that's where the phraseology comes in. And that's why um, we try to be quite disciplined in the use of that. So, for example, if ATC asks us a question, it would be unacceptable to go, yeah, that's fine, mate. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Whereas uh, the correct phraseology would be will co, which is I will comply. Right. Uh, so it might sound a bit, um, you know, sort of like uh, World War Two, Battle of Britain type film, you know. <laughs> I love it. But yes. <laughs> the idea is, is that what we need to do is to accurately convey the information because the message is useless if it's not received correctly. So uh, we use that 
very defined phraseology. It comes from an IKO document and different countries will put their own little variations on it. But broadly speaking, we try to keep it all the same around the world. Um, and that kind of takes me on to the phonetic alphabet, because in the English language, a lot of our letters actually sound quite similar. Yeah. So yeah. C and D, B and E. F and S, for example, yeah. Absolutely. That's where the phonetic alphabet came to pass. And, and is that, that across like the whole of, of the world, essentially? Is it the same across the board? Not exclusively. Uh, there are a few variations. Uh, there's one quite uh, understandable one. But broadly speaking, yes, it is the same across the world. So Alpha Bravo Charlie Delta. Uh, one variation that we have is ordinarily the letter W would be whiskey. Okay. Uh, but in parts of the world where the consumption of alcohol is not deemed to be appropriate then whiskey is replaced with another word that I can't remember at the moment, to be perfectly honest, but they don't use whiskey. Okay, okay that's, that's an interesting uh, take on it. So you guys are, are, are changing time zones constantly while you're flying. So how does that work? I mean, I've heard the, the term Zulu before. I mean, is, is that essentially uh, a time zone that everybody uses or, or does it depend on the airline you work for and, and things like that? Okay, yes, absolutely. So we have throughout aviation a standard time zone. It just happens to be Greenwich Mean Time. Uh, because we kind of Winter or summer. decide. Well, Greenwich Mean Time, of course, doesn't change. Of course, no, sorry. Yes. Uh, so Greenwich Mean Time has no uh, summer or, or winter variation. It is simply a fixed, uh, non-daylight saving time zone. Greenwich Mean Time is the same as Zulu time. Zulu just being a letter of the phonetic alphabet, and it probably has some sort of military connection. So Zulu and Greenwich Mean Time are the same. So throughout aviation, we use Zulu time because it's a fixed datum. So as an example, if I said to you, right, I'll meet you at 10 o'clock. Yep. Now, is that 10 o'clock in the morning? or 10 o'clock in the evening. It's an important aspect, isn't it? Very much it? so, yes, absolutely. And of course, so, it will depend on, on where you've flown from and where you've flown absolutely. to, for example. So we have a fixed datum for the time zone, and we also have a fixed datum, which is we use the 24-hour clock. So if I said to you, I'm going to meet you at 10 o'clock Zulu tomorrow, you would be reasonable in working out that where we are here in the UK... At 10 o'clock in the morning, GMT, which is where we are at the moment, that's where we'll meet. Now, if we were in another part of the world, 10 o'clock in the morning, of course, won't be the same time as it is here in the UK, no. which is fine if we're both operating on the same time zone. But if I've only just arrived, I might be operating on a different time zone, or indeed I might not even be in the same country as you. So where we communicate time, we always use Zulu time. And it doesn't matter where you are in the world, your estimates for time or the time that you're going to depart for your flight plan will always be referenced to Zulu because it's the 
the Zulu time is the same time zone no matter where you are in the world. Right, okay. And one final question before we bring this particular subject to a close, and this is going to sound like a daft question. Is there a difference between Zulu time and uh, UC, uh, what are they, UTC? Yep, exactly the same, just a different name for the same thing. So Zulu time having some sort of uh, uh, military connection. Uh, UTC, uh, universal time coordinate, I think is what that stands for. Again, UTC equals Zulu equals right. GMT. GMT. Okay. As always, Al, your help is very much appreciated. Many thanks. You're most welcome. Can I just say, man, you've done a, I'm going to say, a bravo job <laughs> with that series. I, can't um, t- I don't do the editing now. I can't take any credit for the editing. I just, I just sit there and basically ask Captain Al one question and then off he goes. It's marvellous. I, I tell you what, really enjoy I'm so pleased with the feedback as well. It seems to be going down really well. Um, so I, I'm delighted about that. I really am. Yes, Dad loves it still. Does he? Right. It. Highlight of his week. It is the highlight of his week. See, that's the advantage. If you are Carlos's long-suffering father, you get you get a, you get an advanced copy of this, so you get to watch uh, the yeah. plain truth like beforehand. So uh, there we go. Actually, coming up later, I just want to preview this. Actually, We've got a fascinating start to a series. I know Carlos mentioned it in the introduction with an amazing chap by the name of George yeah. Lee, MBE, uh, that Nick has done for us. So obviously, socially distanced because he was in Australia. Uh, and obviously Nick is where he is uh, so you can't get much more socially distanced really but uh, so it was a Zoom interview so not quite how we'd like to do things as uh, Neil will no doubt know but um, yeah it was the best we could do under the circumstances but wow what an interview we got and I cannot wait to start sharing that with you um, well sort of uh, very shortly after we've finished the commercial so we we should probably get on uh, I I would say Yes we're going to move on with the next story Matt we're going to go for you with this one and obviously as it's story number two for the commercial news it's obviously going to be a ryanair story and this is a shocking story because well what's the headline there? uh yes well the headline is plain and simple it says ryanair is directed to give five thousand euros to charity over an email glitch uh so ryanair has been ordered to give five thousand euros to charity to avoid a court conviction after a technical glitch prevented thousands of customers from opting out of unwanted promotional emails uh the airline was one of several companies that pleaded guilty at Dublin District Court on Thursday to breaking regulations by sending unsolicited marketing text messages or emails. It follows investigations into complaints received by the Data Protection Commission and uh, Judge uh, Anthony Halpin noted Ryanair had apologised, paid prosecution costs and fixed the technical glitch which could have affected almost 40,000 people. Wow, that's a big number, isn't it? Ryanair pleaded to be spared a recorded conviction under the Probation of uh, Offenders Act and offered to pay, to give €1,000 to charity. However, in deciding on the case, the judge cited the airline's regime in relation to its own regulations. If your baggage is a gram overweight, you have to pay extra to get on the plane. If it's one millimetre too big, you pay extra. And if you are one second late on boarding, you may not be permitted to board he told their solicitor. He went on to say that €1,000 was a bit light to get the, pro- the, the probation of the offenders uh, uh, the, the, is it probation of offenders act, adding mm-hmm. um, I, uh, I would be looking at nearer €5,000. The €5,000 will go to the Little Flower Penny Dinner charity that helps poor people in Dublin city centres liberties uh, locally. Now um, uh, 
John hasn't had enough time to sort of double check this, but uh, in fairness to Ryanair, essentially they've been involved with a hiccup within a well-known piece of software that is uh, that is responsible for handling things like uh, marketing, email uh, campaigns, and things. Uh, but obviously, as the company you know with your name on it obviously you are the one who's ultimately li- uh, liable for the hiccup there i have to say also it does sound like this judge has had a very bad experience with ryanair uh, <laughs> due to their uh, their 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 baggage policy i don't know what you think about this nev uh, yes well i think it's <laughs> uh not quite schadenfreude but i think there's definitely some um what should we say a uh, Back story to this. Yeah, somewhere. getting their own back, I think, is yes, <laughs> where I was going to go with it. Have you, have you had the pleasure of travelling Ryanair, Neil? Oh, yes, yes. I have managed to line Mr. O'Leary's pockets many times. Um, <laughs> none more so than when I went to... Uh, we were actually not that long when we were uh, pitching at the Berlin Air Show. We won a pitching event there, and I got my timings wrong on my ticket. So oh, no. I have... I have done the, I flew in the night before, went to the air show, did our pitch, rocked up to the airport uh, in front of the security guard, and he did his very Germanic thing, your plane has left. (laughs) I was was like, what? I said, don't be ridiculous, it's three hours away. No, it says here, your plane has left. Oh, no. It hasn't left. I am here at seven o'clock. The plane leaves at 10 o'clock. What are you talking about? He said... But you were booked on the um, ten o'clock in the morning flight. Ah, I went. What? <laughs> oh, dear. I look, and it was my co- it was my cock up. Yeah, completely wow. my bad. But oh yeah, at that point, now now you get to pay a proper. Uh, yeah, because now, now just out of interest, how much did that little um, we'll say Freudian slip, uh, Freudian error? Uh, how much did that actually set you back? I, I'm almost terrified to ask. Uh, the ticket that I originally bought, we did for the princely sum of £79.99 return, pretty much, which is awesome, <laughs> uh, which then you add on another £256 on top of that. My goodness, right. Okay, yes. So that was that was an expensive um, experience, shall yeah. we say. Actually, actually, I will say, Nev, Nev, I was looking at the prices of some of the BA flights on their website the other day. I will say, Nev, their prices have come down a slight bit. Oh, we? yes. No, there's, there's lots of... Well, the thing is, you see, for example, on... Uh, Heathrow to Edinburgh routes, for example, where they would normally run probably eight flights a day out of Heathrow. They're probably running four now, um, and they've been combining flights because the load factors have been appalling uh, recently. Um, When I went to Gibraltar the other week, uh, that was a little bit busier, almost a full A320 in in both directions. But certainly the domestic flying... um, is not very well populated at the moment, so they need to get uh, bums on seats again. So, right. uh, yeah, there's been some uh, much uh, much lower uh, fares in, in the mm. last few weeks. I well, and I suppose, I suppose if you only, you know, even if you're only getting, you know, 30, 40, 50 or 100 pounds for that seat, that's got to be better than not getting that 100 pounds, isn't it? Yes, and of course, um, the problem is at the moment, of course, BA, well, and all of the other, what are called, I would term, legacy carriers, um, all the money is really made in business class and first class when they're operating on transatlantic or the Asia-Pacific routes. Frankly speaking, people travelling in the cheap seats, that doesn't make the airline money at all. Um, So... They they need to have the, what I would term, the, the premium passengers uh, flying. But, of course, that's not happening at the moment, and that probably won't be happening for at least another few months. Uh, no, really. indeed. Yeah. Need, it, need the Actually, uh, vaccine to kick in, don't we? 
before we move on to the next story, Lane Street just says in the chat room, 1A, still not cheap, I bet. Oh, I don't know. If you uh, book it well in advance, you know. Uh, right. Yeah. OK. Yes, yes. It'll, only, it'll only be the price of probably what I last paid for my car. <laughs> yes. Um, you know. You, but, pa- you paid for your card? Well, the, the, the red one I did, yes. Oh, the red one. OK. <laughs> yeah, the one that Mother uses. Bless her. Oh, don't get me started on the C-Max, Carlos. Oh, dear. Oh, no. Oh, no, so no you, you don't. You don't. It, it, <laughs> we, we had the, we had the um, um, com, um, air conditioning compressor seize, and oh, it no. uh, sheared off bolts and all sorts. Oh, don't, don't get me started on a bit of a mess. Anyway, uh, Armando, you're up next. Armando. <laughs> yeah, this story from HindustanTimes.com. In a serious violation of norms, Go Air's Chennai to Port, Bear, uh, Port Blair flight on December 15th and 16th flew without the requisite permissions in place to operate those flights. The budget carrier's flight was scheduled as a cargo flight, but violating rules, the airline booked passengers and operated both of them as commercial flights leading to its return. The Airport's Authority of India sources uh, said the flight had reached Port Blair when it was denied permission to land. A GoAir spokesperson confirmed that the uh, in-air turnback, uh, but but they did not reveal details from that. Um, there's a quote uh, that says, GoAir flight 1305 from Chennai to Port Blair did an uh, air, we're going to call it an air return. I think the, the translation is a little off. Uh, due to operational reasons and landed in Chennai with 160 passengers on board, GoAir has taken the utmost care and rendered all the requisite assistance to the passengers. The airline sincerely regrets the inconvenience caused to the passengers. Uh, Arun Kumar, the director general of the Directorate General of Civil Aviation, said the regulatory agency is investigating the matter. Uh, Relevant documents available with this particular news outlet uh, confirmed that the airline is permitted to operate cargo-only flights on Tuesday and Wednesday between Chennai and Port Blair, Uh, until March 24, 2021, Uh, but that flight schedule implies that the airline in this case had to operate those cargo flights for December 15th and 16th. However, on both of these dates, the flight was sold as a a passenger flight. Uh, This was actually one of the questions that I was going to talk to Neil about earlier, but uh, dealing with regulatory authorities is uh, is always a pleasure, isn't it? I know here in in the U.S., we have the saying that that the FAA's unofficial motto is, we're not happy until you're not happy. <laughs> That's pretty much spot on. Yeah. So Actually, just hearing that story, it reminds me of um, one of my early, in the aircraft trading business, one of my early sales. I had uh, Alitalia MD-83. Uh, it was a Banco Roma-owned air- aircraft. And we were selling it to a client in Africa. And we rock up to the meeting. And unfortunately... It's one of those meetings where you get blindsided by something that wasn't quite revealed when you turned up. So you've got the airline representatives, you've got the bank representatives, local government representatives, and they quite rightly asked the new uh, potential owner how he's going to operate and what he's going to do with the airplane. At which point he says, oh, yes, we're going to operate them as combis. At which point I look at my colleague and looked across (laughs) at him because there is no combi mod for the MD-80 at that time. Uh, And it was like what do you mean you're going to operate them as combi? And he said, oh, yes, we do the, uh, we do the conversion ourselves. No problem. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. At which point there's lots of glancing around the room and it's like, enlighten us. Um, <laughs> yeah. what, how does this work? Do you put the passengers in the back and the cargo in the front? Or, oh, yes, yeah, we've done this before. No problem at all. We've done it with uh, AN24. Uh, we've done it. And, oh, uh, tell us about it. How does that work? 
Well, we don't have that aeroplane anymore. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> what happened to it? <laughs> what happened to that? There we ask. Well, yes, it didn't quite take off one day and went through the end of the field. And it was just like, at this moment, you want the world to open up beneath you. And you think, oh, my God. What on earth is happening? I <laughs> extract myself from this deal right now. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Abort, yeah, just abort. Like a scenario with like, abort, terribly sorry, wasting time here. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Time to move we'll, on. Time to we'll move, move on. on to the next deal. Um, well, yeah, it was an experience. We'll, we'll see what happens with this story or if we ever find any details. Details, but uh, but yeah, this is probably some kind of uh, miscommunication between the the booking engine, the reservations system for for Go Air, which which operates about sixty uh, Airbuses, um, and they are you know a low cost airline, so I'm sure they had some special dispensation to operate cargo only flights. But uh, well, yeah, they probably won't make that mistake again, will they? I mean, that must have. Been, I mean, as a passenger, I mean, how cross would you be, especially if you're, you know, you're, you're within essentially communication range of where you want to be, you know, because they're and they're like, no, you've got passengers on board, absolutely not. Well, you know what it specifically <laughs> tells me is there's some very astute airport workers because somebody realized before that airplane landed, wait a minute, something's a little bit different, and it's not yeah. where it's supposed to be, which means, <laughs> yeah, you know, it was probably something innocuous like them calling for what gate are we going to? Yeah, and and. The the, the ramp controller saying, wait a minute, we didn't schedule a gate for you guys. No, uh, you are you know. cargo. Yeah, <laughs> what's going on? Uh, yeah, you're going to the other side of the airport. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we can offload, yeah, offload the passengers there. I'm sure that'll go down uh, very well. Anyway, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great story. As I, say, I think there may be more to come out of uh, this one. Uh, Carlos, we'll go with the next story for you. Yeah, this one is, uh, this comes to us from the aviation24.be and... Um, well, it's horrible, really. KLM steward arrested in Singapore for not respecting coronavirus rules. So last month, on the 14th of November, a KLM flight attendant was arrested in Singapore for not respecting the local coronavirus rules, the airline confirmed to Dutch uh, News. The steward got caught in the hotel lobby while he was not allowed to leave his room and is still in custody. Uh, countries like Singapore, Thailand and China impose strict coronavirus rules for foreign crew members. Pilots and flight attendants are taken from the airport to the hotel and are not allowed to leave the room unless for room service or for their return to the airport. Uh, these rules to avoid the spread of the coronavirus uh, also applies to KLM staff who lay over in Singapore even if the crew stays uh, multiple nights. Uh, every KLM crew member has been informed about the strict rules, yet the steward left his room and went to the hotel lobby. Uh, what the steward was going to do and whether he knew what uh, he could do and, and still only stay in his room is not yet clear. He is currently staying in a detention room uh, a waiting area um, in Singapore pending legal charges. A KLM spokesperson confirmed on the arrest on the 14th of November a KLM crew member violated the local quarantine rules by temporarily leaving his hotel room without permission. For privacy reasons, the airline didn't make further announcements. No. Now, I think it's safe to say here, Carlos, that Singapore is one of those places where if they tell you to do something, mm. it's probably a very good idea that you do exactly as you're told because uh, you know they're, they're quite i think should we should we just say they're quite they're known for being quite strict shall we, shall we actually it's, it's worth noting as well that on the uh this this from the singer uh sydney morning herald and um 
This one was actually sent in to us by Phil Gray. Mm. So thanks to you in Australia. Um, apparently, according to this story, 13 crew members on a LATAM Chile flight from South America were each given a $1,000 penalty infringement notice for leaving their hotel in Mascot, where they were subject to the air transportation health order. I mean, I know I'd see the point in all this. I do see the point in all the, the, the rules and stuff that are in place. But, you know... Yeah, see, you and I differ a bit. To be tied to the room, to be tied to a room yeah, for your no, entire I get that. layover. But the, mm. but the rules are the rules, mate. That's the trouble, yeah. isn't it? it? It's one of those, isn't it? I mean, I think, I don't know. I, I, there is an issue, and I don't know whether whether Neil or, or Nev or, or Armando would agree with this, but we've got a... We've got a bit of a an issue, I feel, anyway, in regards to ambiguity surrounding the rules because the, it, everything isn't as clear-cut as perhaps everybody would, would like to think. And I, and I guess it's because it's almost impossible to do that. Perhaps, Nev, you, I don't know, what, I don't know what, what your thoughts are on, the, on these stories. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's, there's variation around the world, but uh, could I just say uh, that non-compliance in Singapore is really not a good idea. Not recommended. <laughs> and the crew will have known the story, I would imagine. Yeah. Be, uh, at the briefing before they left, uh, was it Amsterdam uh, they came from? Mm, yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they would have known that the rules of the game uh, way before they even got on the aircraft about what the downroute situation was. So, obviously, there's there's different opinions and different stories, and there may be some ambiguity, possibly. But, uh, really, I would have thought uh, an airline such as KLM that, you know, yeah, really yeah. pretty good with the way they handle their, their crew and their staff and, yeah, and that kind of absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Now, obviously, with, yeah. I mean, with the project that you're involved in, in, in Neil, obviously, I mean, coronavirus uh, rules and regulations obviously must be a real minefield for, for what you're trying to put together. Um, interestingly, I mean, we, we've got something that we're working on at the moment on the seating um, that should be quite good uh, in the sense that, obviously, the seats are palletized. So the fact that we can do stuff with that design, um, we can do different configurations, the aircraft will be very COVID safe by that time, um, of which there may not be any COVID at that time, uh, fingers crossed. But there will be something else. Um, let's not forget the fact that the next one is just downwind. I mean, it's going to be a case of there will be something in the future. So I think that all of this is actually just making us very aware that the aviation network is a, an incredible propagator of anything. So the more that we learn now, the more systems we put in place now to solve this current problem will hopefully make any future things less of an impact. At least that's what we hope anyway. Absolutely. I mean, that's a great point. I mean, uh, Armando, I don't know if you want to, uh, to come, come in on that. Yeah, I, I just couldn't agree with Nev more. As a professional aviator or somebody that works for an organization like KLM, I know when I was in the military, you are versed in and briefed on cultural norms and sensitivities as well as legal requirements for the countries that you're about to visit. So, um, you know, this, this crew member should have known that uh, the rules that are in place and also the, the uh, standing consequences for breaking some of those rules and some of those it's countries. an interesting cultural question actually when you think about this and you look at how the world is now if you look at how the chinese have managed to get a grip on this thing and that's because if the chinese government turns around to you and says you're going to stay in your apartment for three weeks and if you step out of that apartment it's not going to be good for you guess what happens everybody stays in their apartment for three weeks and they take their food delivery here if we say something to people it's like you cannot do this no. i can and i will 
yeah. and off they go. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a real cultural thing. So there, if you go to some yeah. countries where they say, this is how you're going to behave and this is what you're going to do, you can choose to ignore that if you want, but you, you have to deal with the consequences thereafter. And That's... also, I think, I think it's fair to, to, to mention as well, obviously, in Australia, they, uh, from the email that Phil sent us, that he was going into great detail about, you know, I mean, they had a massive lockdown for a long, 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 long time. And, you know, they've come out of the side of it now with, you know, and they're very strict on their borders. I know they're, you know, they're, they're, they don't share their borders with anyone. So I guess it makes it a lot easier. And the only way to get into and out of Australia is either by boat or by aircraft. So that makes uh, it much easier, I suppose, for you to police essentially exactly who's coming in and going out. But, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of people were sort of like, oh, this is a very strict way of going about things. But of course, you know, Australia now has sort of come out the other side of this with with uh, you know, you know, as you say, with a similar to results like what they've had in China and things off the back of this, because you know everybody did comply with what they were told to do, and and you know they're now able to sort of more or less lead normal lives at this stage. So you're saying that a country surrounded by water, where the only access to it is <laughs> you know, by I, air I, or sea, I see where you're going with this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> radical yeah absolutely anyway, radical yeah <laughs> moving on well played. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's why hawaii has the lowest cases for us yeah absolutely and in theory we should be the same but we're not mm. there we are never mind anyway carlos sorry moving swiftly on to the next story and uh, nev's got some news on a story that we've been covering for about the last 300 years oh it seems like it doesn't it well i'm sure neil has got an opinion on this and i'll be very interested to hear what he's got to say this is on the bbc news website and it says that he's Heathrow wins court battle to build third runway. Well, this we covered this on episode 339, plus many others beforehand. Uh, but the scheme was previously blocked by the Court of Appeal, who said that the government's airport strategy didn't meet up-to-date UK climate targets. But the Supreme Court has ruled that the strategy was legitimately based on previous, less stringent climate targets at the time it was agreed. The firm behind Heathrow can now seek planning permission for the runway. But it still faces major obstacles, including having to persuade a public inquiry of the case for expansion. And if planning inspectors approve the scheme, the government will still have the final say. A Heathrow spokesman called the decision to lift the ban the right result for the country. Demand for aviation will recover from COVID-19 and the additional capacity at an expanded Heathrow will allow Britain as a sovereign nation to compete for trade and win against our rivals in France and Germany. The ruling is a blow for campaigners who've been hounding the runway project in the courts because they say it breaches the government's policy of removing almost all carbon emissions from the economy by 2050, the so-called net zero commitment. But environmentalists still plan to challenge every stage of the planning application in the courts, including at the European Courts of Human Rights, where campaigners will argue that relying on the outdated emissions targets is inconsistent with the right to life. Um, this has been going on since at least the year 2000, I, I seem to recall. Uh, it's probably a 20-year project so far. Um, personally speaking, I've been a big fan of the third runway and all the rest of it. But having spoken to Neil at length about short-haul aircraft ops, because the, the third one runway really is only designed to be uh, for short-haul operations, what do you think about short-haul flying in the UK 
as it is at the moment, Neil. Is that at all sustainable? Um, it's interesting. You've got to break it down differently. I mean, if you look at, for example, the, the BMI model, uh, that proves the fact that if you're running an ERJ145 regional jet out of Heathrow, averaging 18 passengers on board, forget it, you're going bust. Uh, you can't sustain that model. That, that is a death knell right there. Um, I, I did say during this, and I've said it on a couple of conferences, that I thought that COVID might be the death knell for the third runway. And whilst they've gotten a victory in the courts here, and I understand what Heathrow wants to do, and I can understand the, the potential, shall we say, vested interest in saying why it should be so great for the country. Um, the problem is you still got to have a public inquiry. The problem is that you've now got people who've experienced quieter skies. They've experienced cleaner air and things like that. And so it is a challenge because we are pushing into a cleaner, greener environment. Now, can he throw offset that in a big way? Can they do something that's fairly radical? Like, could they turn around and say, we are going to mandate all tugs across the airport to be electric. We're going to do holding pens where people will be firing up the end. Or there could be a whole range of things that they could do to offset in order to get the thing put through. However, um, is the support going to be there? Is the traffic going to be there? I think people would put up with the traffic levels going back to what they were quite happily. And we're all excited and hopeful that air transport traffic levels do go to that because there's an awful lot of people, an awful lot of jobs reliant on that. However, the time for third runway was then. Is there the argument for third runway now? Uh, is there better options that we can look at? What are the type of aircraft we're going to put on the third runway? Uh, is there a different strategy? Is there a strategy where we've seen airlines pulling out of Gatwick could we now put those short-haul flights into Gatwick and make Heathrow the international hub? Um, all sorts of things. There could be things done where we really have a proper look at this and say, are we really needing to put a third runway into Heathrow? Heathrow will say, of course we are, uh, and understandable. But let's see. Let's go through all the options, go through all the arguments, let everybody present their case and, and see what comes at the end of it. Well, but, and, perhaps, uh, and perhaps now is the time to be doing it because obviously we've had a, a situation where everything is a lot quieter. So if you are going to implement mass changes, if you like, and say, as you said, as an example, switch Gatwick to short haul and make Heathrow international um, or long haul, if you see what I mean, for want of a better uh, use of terms. Maybe now while the airports are quiet, that is the time to implement these things before things start getting busy. Yeah, I mean, it's a perfect opportunity, although it always surprises me when it, it, I found it hilarious that when we were in the lockdown, uh, the roads were empty. There was nobody out. It was completely quiet. The moment lockdown ends, we're seeing companies digging up the roads. We're seeing gas mains work <laughs> being done. And now it's just like, Yes. Really? Yes. Is there not somebody somewhere that thinks that actually this is an essential service and we should probably be doing it when there's no cars and nobody around? <laughs> um, so that is the logical thinking of people on this planet that have sort of that common sense view. It doesn't always come out sometimes. And there's a whole host of reasons why it can't happen, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that certainly within regional mobility perspective, I think what we're going to be seeing over the next 10 years is a very, very different regional air mobility format. Uh, and I think that the regional carriers need to be looking at this from the perspective of the LCCs coming into the legacy carriers. It's the same scenario. You're going to be looking at smaller airports, smaller airfields taking certain routes. So, for example, if 
Heathrow to Aberdeen was 18 passengers on that flight of that day, well, that might be going from Norfolk, or it might be going from Stableford, or it might be going from Fair Oaks, or it might be going from wherever it is, Red Hill. Uh, there are options and airfields where you can do that volume of passengers to airfields where you're not going to have the cost base, you're not going to have the crowds, you're not going to have the all of the infrastructure costs that you need, so you can start then reducing the, the price of the tickets. So is there space for our regional airports? Of course. Um, you're going to have feeder airports doing different routes. Um, if there's reduced international routes, for example, in places like America, then you're going to increase your feeder connectivity into some of those now. So there is, over the next 10 years, I think we're going to see a lot of change. And I think if you look back in 20 to 30 years' time, 2020 might actually be a, an incredible pivotal year for commercial aviation. I think a lot is going to happen in this next decade. Yeah, I, I couldn't, couldn't agree more, uh, Neil. And uh, I was just thinking the number of times that I've flown down from Manchester, uh, or if I've been doing some work up in Manchester, flown back down to Heathrow, uh, you know, got to the airport, uh, delay in check-in or incoming aircraft was late, then a 20-minute hold over Bovingdon uh, before you get to Heathrow, uh, then I've got a bag with me, so I've had to wait. So, you know, all these things uh, on a half-full A319 makes no sense at all, does it, really? So mm, it doesn't. Yeah, we shall see. We shall Agreed. See. Anyway, we'll move on to the last story now. Armando, I think that's with you. Yeah, this last story comes to us from CNN Travel. Uh, Japan Airlines is asking some travelers to make an ethical choice by skipping meals on board their flights. But a representative for the airline says the measure is about reducing food waste, not cutting costs. The Japan Airlines rep explains to CNN that the ethical choice option is currently only available on select overnight flights within Asia, as many passengers opt to sleep through the whole flight instead of wake up for the meal service. Since the airline prepares a meal for every person on board, the passenger who would rather sleep through the meal service or who prefers snacks they, bought from, uh, they brought from home results in wasted food. The program was inspired by the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, uh, one of which is reducing food waste around the world. In Japan, uh, companies have become competitive in their approach to meeting these goals. Uh, it was first implemented on a trial basis on flights between Bangkok and Tokyo uh, in November. This five-and-a-half-hour flight is usually operated as a red-eye, leaving Bangkok at uh, 10.40 p.m. and arriving at 5.40 in the morning. Uh, because of the pandemic, relatively few people were flying, giving the airline the opportunity for a gradual rollout. Guests can opt to forego their meal service ahead of time by going on JAL's website or calling the airline once they've confirmed their flight reservation, similar to the way they might request a vegetarian or a kosher meal in advance. So while many airlines offer the opportunity to say no thanks to a meal service during the flight, uh, Japan Airlines approach means that there are no extra meals that are prepared and then thrown out. Wow. Interesting. I didn't think I would ever see Ryanair considered as offering you the ethical meal choice. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. There is food well, interesting. Thought, literally, yeah. It's interesting because, I mean, I remember when, um, when Allegiant took the MD-80s and a lot of the time, I mean, they've been operating fantastically in the States on a low-cost basis. And when they took the MD-80s, there was a lot of eyebrows went up. It was like, really? Why would you take the Mad Dog? Um, and the reason was what they did, they could see a different way of operating them. So they stripped out, they were XTW, I think the first ones were XTWA aircraft, remember. Um, they stripped out all the hot food galleys. 
They instructed pilots to run as long as they could down the runway uh, and not use reverse thrust and things like all the usual tricks in the book. And they actually managed to make the MD-80 work on the routes that they were doing. And of course, it was bomb-proof reliable, incredibly cheap to acquire, loads of parts everywhere. And it was brilliant. I think I remember when Jude Bricker and the guys were, were there who I knew uh, at the time, and they were doing really good stuff. So I get why there's the ethical argument, but there's also an awful lot of, of revenue reasons why you want to do that as well. Yeah. And like we were just talking about 2020, an innovative year we've had to adapt. Now people are used to just getting a water and a Biscoff cookie in a little plastic bag and, and they're fine with it for a three hour or, or I just flew to uh, what's uh, Santa, uh, Santa Barbara, California, not too long ago. And that's what I had was two little water bottles and, and two cookies for a six hour you know, total flight and perfectly fine with it. Fantastic. So thank you. So uh, we're going to move on to the next part of the show, aren't we, Matt? So this next part is uh, something very special indeed. And it's uh, something that's been put together and uh, we've had the privilege uh, or Captain Nick has had the privilege to chat to George Lee. Now, for those of you who don't know, George Lee is a three times world championship uh, glider uh, winner. And um, yeah, Captain Nick sat down with uh, George to have a little chat. I've had the privilege of speaking to some fascinating and highly qualified people in the past, but none more so than George Lee, a man who I was lucky enough to serve with in the Royal Air Force. The impact that George has had on the world of aviation can best be summed up by mentioning that an Air Commodore, an Air Vice Marshal, an Air Marshal, and the heir to the throne of the United Kingdom, Great Britain, and Northern Ireland all wrote forwards to his wonderful book, Hold Fast to Your Dreams. I won't go on too much because I'm as keen as you are to hear him tell us all about his life in aviation. Hi, George. Hi, Nick. Thanks very much indeed for allowing the listeners of Plain Talking UK podcast to uh, hear your story and for allowing me to catch up with you after so many years. Yes, it's been quite a long time. I think 40 plus, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Let's go back to the beginning. You were born barely a month after peace was declared at the end of the Second World War and brought up in Northern Ireland in quite modest circumstances. What was life like for you and your family back then? Yes, the circumstances were fairly humble, Nick. I had one sibling, a sister, a younger sister. My father had a... A fairly modest job, I guess. He, he worked at a, a hosiery factory and money was tight. It, it really was. But, you know, I, they were wonderful parents. I was blessed with wonderful parents. And they really, there was a lovely, warm family atmosphere. And yes, we lived in a small apartment on the south side of Dublin Bay, very short distance from the sea, which I guess sparked that an interest in me and I, my, my, my hobby was uh, fishing and everything associated with it. But life was simple. Life was very enjoyable. My father came from that area where I grew up, but my mother was, came from a farming area further south, about 50 miles south of Dublin. 
I love that uh, you and your enthusiasm for fishing were responsible for putting your poor sister off eating fish for most of her life. How did you first get interested in aviation? Well, that's, that's the interesting bit, I guess, because I had no family connection whatsoever to aviation in any way, shape or form. I'd never been up in an aeroplane. But when I was doing my digging for bait for my sea fishing and the poor old back needed a rest occasionally, I would straighten up and just take a pause, look around. And it was close to, to pier walls by Dunleary Pier, um, the south side of Dublin Bay. And when the wind was blowing, I just noticed the seagulls soaring effortlessly along that pier. They didn't flap, they didn't circle, they just cruised along, holding altitude. And I was absolutely fascinated, completely fascinated. And then, um, but didn't think much more about it, I suppose. A friend of mine, I was very much a loner at that stage, did my own thing, but I did have one friend at least. And he advised me that he was going to be joining the Royal Air Force. And I just thought, hmm, you know, I really want to become a pilot. I, I, I think I knew at that point that it was in me, that that's what I wanted to do. And I looked at the literature that he had. As you can imagine, there's not too many Royal Air Force recruiting officers in the Republic of Ireland. So I looked at the literature and it's advised that doing a three-year technical apprenticeship, which was what he was going to do, raised the possibility at least of getting a commission at the end of it. And I knew that was required in order to become a pilot. So my uncle took me and we went on my first ever flight from Dublin up to Belfast to find an RAF recruiting office. And that memory is so vivid. It really is. It was a Fokker F-27 friendship and we got airborne out of Dublin airport. And when we just, that airplane just lifted off and I just felt the air properly for the first time and those wings flexed. And I, yes, my, my heart just leapt. I thought, wow. <laughs> so that was, that was my very first flight. And that's, yeah. And from then on, yes, went to Halton, RAF Halton, three-year apprenticeship, 1962 to 1964. And when I got there, the entry would have been around about 160 from memory. And I found out that of those 160, probably only two or three would actually get commissioned. And I thought, whoops, what have I done? Because I'm not a technical person. I wasn't then and I'm not now. I, I make no pretense about it. I'm not technically gifted. So I thought, what on earth am I going to do about this situation? This isn't good. First of all, though, I have to graduate from the three-year technical apprenticeship, which somehow I managed to do. Also, at the same time, completing uh, the five GCEs, which were required as a minimum educational standard in order to become commissioned. The, the Irish examinations that I had, given that I left home quite young, would not have been sufficient. So there was an extra workload there. But the critical thing was, yes, what will I do about this situation as far as flying is concerned? And it was then that I discovered that there was a group of halts and apprentices who every weekend went over to the RAF Gliding and Soaring Association Centre at Bicester, not far from Oxford. So I thought, well, 
that's the answer. I'll go and show motivation and give that a go. Uh, let me just remind everyone that the age of an RAF apprentice was very young, George. You were 16, a very tender age to leave home and into the military. Uh, was that hard to cope with? I think, looking back, yes, it was, Nick. It, uh, it, it is a tender age to leave home, leave home. And I know it affected my mother quite a lot. I guess my father also, although he didn't show it. And given the fact that I was a loner and away from home for the, full t uh, for the first time in a different country, it was, it was demanding, it was challenging. Um, but I managed to make a couple of good friends at Halton. And we, in fact, we were doing um, air combat control line flying. So that, 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 that was an interest, aviation related. But as a person, yes, I guess I... I had to grow up very quickly, and it wasn't an e it wasn't all that an easy process. Coupled with the service discipline, of course, which was in abundance at Halton. But yes, to come and then the gliding. Now this just opened up a completely new world for me. It really did, and of course, one always remembers first flights, milestones. And my first flight in a glider was in a nowadays vintage machine called the Sedberg T21, side-by-side two-seater. And the weather conditions were miserable. It was a, a winch launch. And we only got about 600 feet off the winch launch. And that whole aviation experience, the circuit, from, it would have lasted something like three minutes. <laughs> but I was, apt, and it was even like rain, but I was absolutely wrapped, completely wrapped. And the hook just... Yes, yeah, sank in at that very stage. I thought, whatever happens professionally, I'm going to be keeping gliding up. That's for sure. So I guess you were using every spare weekend, every spare moment to get uh, to Bista to uh, do some more gliding, were you? Well, yes, it was weekends only. Of course, during the week was full on with the apprentice training. And uh, the years went by and I improved in my gliding. I increased my experience base. And the, the thing about the flying at Bissa was a very large gliding setup, but the emphasis was very much on solo flying locally as opposed to cross-country flying, which is what ultimately gliding is really all about. So that was a little bit of a limitation, but I had some nonetheless wonderful experiences. My first solo was actually in that remarkable T21 machine and then uh, moved on to the Baby Gruno, which was a a very much lighter aircraft. And um, that gave me some circuit planning issues because I was thrust into the air to a much greater height than had ever been achieved before in my experience of a winch launch. <laughs> so I had to get rid of all this height in an efficient, safe manner before joining the circuit. But it was all good. It was a wonderful experience. It really was. And no regrets there at all. You certainly seem to have got on very well. Uh, and I think you are probably recognized quite early at early as a complete natural. Um, what did your instructors say about you? Well, there wasn't an awful lot except one memory I do have, and that was in a somewhat more advanced two-seater for the time, at least, the Slingsby Eagle, which was a tandem two-seater. And the instructor in the back was actually a man called Ron Newell, and he was the deputy chief flying instructor of the centre. And it was the back end of the day, and we got airborne on tow, just climbing up. And he actually made a remark. It was, yes, it was good to fly with somebody who was 
yeah, to use your phrase, complete natural and knew, knew what he was doing. So that, that was a compliment. But overall, no, there wasn't really, I don't recall much being said. Now, your plans to graduate from Holton with an offer uh, of a commission were sadly dashed. dashed. Uh, how did you feel about that? Initially devastated because I thought I'd blown the whole thing. Uh, I really have. And then I thought, well, life's good. Gliding is absolutely wonderful. It's keeping me going. It's my, it's my, my sole food at that time, if you will, my raison d'etre. And I will get through this technical training. I will, even if I'm hopeless at soldering and everything else that goes on. And I will pass my GC, get my GCEs, which I did. And I did pass out. I even made the rank of leading apprentice. So that was a little, I'm not quite sure how, but I did. So I had a little room in the corner of the, the big bunk rooms. And that, that yes, that, so that was a privilege. And I thought, well, I'm just going to have to carry on with this and see how life works out. So from graduating at Halton, I was posted to an RAF base called Cologne, RAF Cologne near Bath. And they operated the Hastings, the four-pistoned engine tail dragger machine, which was fairly multi-role, but primarily paratrooping, I seem to recall. And it really was getting old at that time when I was working on it. So that was a particular challenge, especially as I was an electrician with all the old wiring and everything on it. But the real big perk was that the base, RAF Cologne, had a gliding club. Yes. So I was very heavily involved in that gliding club. And the chief flying instructor of the club was a wonderful man who's sadly no longer with us called Tug Wilson. And he took a keen interest in me and bless him when he, re he knew how, how passionately I wanted to become a pilot. My trade reports, uh, professional trade reports, must have read terribly, frankly, because I wasn't, I really wasn't good. But he spoke up for me at station level. I know he did. And he got my application off base. And then it was, then I was able to paddle my own canoe. So I got on to um, air cruise selection, Biggin Hill and all the assessments and so on. But to come back to the gliding at Cologne, that's where I started cross-country flying. And this was, and many, many other wonderful experiences. So I did my first, gliding has certain badge certificate requirements. And uh, the first one is a fifth, the first cross country requirement is at least 50 kilometer cross country flight. So I flew from Cologne all the way back up to where I started gliding at Bister. And it had the odd moment of drama en route, but I got out of that hole and made it to Bister, which was absolutely wonderful. And then the second requirement for that badge was stay airborne for at least five hours. So having got to Bister, I decided, well, I'm going to, yes, I'm going to carry on and stay airborne. So I did the five-hour bit as well. At that time, you couldn't claim all three elements of badge at once. The final element being a, a altitude gain of at least 1,000 meters from the lowest point. So I did that subsequently in a cloud climb. Uh, the UK is one of the few countries in the world where glider pilots can actually legally climb inside cloud, where the rate of climb invariably is greater than outside the cloud. But cloud flying, if I may just say a couple of words about it, had some beautiful, magical moments, cloud flying, absolutely superb. 
but the instrumentation was, to say the least, minimal. I was flying on a, a modified turn and slip from RAF turn and slip, which had been tweaked inside to give the right sort of response for a typical thermaling angle of bank and a reasonably basic compass. And one, and that was it. Nowadays, of course, uh, people use nice miniature artificial horizons, et cetera, et cetera. But at that time, that's, that's what that cloud flew on. But to come out of the side near the top of a beautiful towering queue with this cloudscape down below, a little bit of ice maybe on the wings, but it was just so beautiful, absolute magical experiences. And uh, that, that, that was just one memory from my flying at Cologne at that gliding club. I'm amazed that you were flying with just a turn and slip because uh, most people won't understand the intricacies of instrument flying and how hard it is when you're in cloud to know which way up you are and how your body tries to deceive you. And uh, that is such a basic instrument to use to uh, work out your attitude. Um, but uh, it was surprisingly um, common uh, in those days uh, that there were no st standby instruments. And if your main artificial horizon failed, that was the instrument you were always going to use to uh, know which way up you were. Well, as I said, that was my primary um, flying instrument, and it was modified to cope with typical thermaling angle in 35, 40 degrees angle bank, something of that order. One made sure that one was very solidly centered on the core of the thermal <laughs> before entering the cloud, because then you hopefully would require minimum control inputs, and you just carry on and just fly as smoothly and gently as you, yeah, as you possibly could. That's amazing. Um, during that tour, you met a very pretty lady um, who seemed to find something in a junior technician uh, that she uh, found attractive, despite you getting her very wet on the back of your motorcycle. <laughs> That's when you met your wife, wasn't it? If you want to take your knowledge to the next level, sign up for a subscription at the A320 Lounge. Our online video courses combine whiteboard-style lessons with full failure demonstrations shot in 4K in state-of-the-art simulators using a professional production team. Go into your next simulator session with confidence, having seen failures run in real time and with the background knowledge to answer any questions from your instructor. To get more information and to sign up, visit a320lounge.com. Oh, going back to George's interview, really, really excited to be finally sharing with you. It's been, um, Nev, I think you'll agree with me, it's been quite the technical challenge, uh, shall yeah. we say, in these difficult times to try and put it together. about uh, George's level of internet, which yes. at one point resembled 56k modem. It did, absolutely. The first call that we were on was, was and I'm just thinking, I literally don't know how we're going to do this. A bit of a, bit of a wet string or something. But and then, uh, and no. then he had a man turn up because he, he was having yeah. some other problems, and it was just like... <laughs> it was just like it was yeah. wonderful anyway it's been a real pleasure to because I, I got to sit in on that whole interview uh, which was uh, fascinating as did producer John uh, my personal thanks to Nick as always uh, who is the, the ultimate when it comes to ask, oh, asking yeah. questions of, of that nature and as I say we've got a, we've got several parts of this great interview to share with you uh, coming up I think the next one's actually going to come in the new year I think um, there's going to be a, a bit of a break but we just wanted to share with you the very first episode it's going to be a great series and for anybody who 
who's interested uh, in the book that he was being uh, that was being referred to earlier. It's a book called The Hold Fast to Your Dreams, written by George Lee MBE, and that is currently available on Amazon for anyone that's interesting. Uh, I've actually had a, a, a read through it uh, as well. There's some great photographs which he's also shared with us that I will um, I will share within the, the thing. But as I say, genuinely, like you know, it's got it's got forwards from from like you know uh, from His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales and all sorts. So it's a, a fantastic book. It really is. But uh, our personal thanks to George for that great series. Did you say that came from Amazon, uh, Matt? Amazon, yes, absolutely. Yep. Good, good. Don't forget, if you're going to buy the book, make sure you <laughs> go through our website and use our Amazon link. I see what you did there. Good website. thinking. I like it. Yeah, well done. Anyway, moving <laughs> swiftly on with the show, we're going to hand things over to our resident military expert, Armando. Yeah, good luck with this. You've got about 13 minutes, all right, Armando? Well, guys, yeah, despite our best efforts, we still have 13 minutes, which leaves us 11 minutes for military news. So, Matt, if you're ready, hit the button. Here we go. I think we're just going to call this episode the innovation episode or something like that. Because this first, this first story is about DARPA, the, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. So this idea behind DARPA's Gremlin program is simple. We've talked about it before on, on different episodes. It's to turn a cargo aircraft like a tried and true C-130 into a mothership capable of launching and retrieving swarms of small drones. A recent test, however, proves that the execution of that goal may be easier said than done. So during a series of flight tests that started October 28th, DARPA made nine attempts to cover three X-61 Gremlins air vehicles in flight. Each of those failed. The agency said in a news release, uh, which characterized the effort as just inches from success. This marks the first time that DARPA has attempted to recover the Gremlins. Uh, They are actually made by Lidos, uh, which is a subsidiary of Dynetics. Um, actually, Dynetics is a subsidiary of Lidos. Um, this is a, via capture device made it to the same C-130 that deployed the air vehicles. During a successful recovery, the C-130 would lower a docking bullet, which you can see in the picture there, that helps stabilize each vehicle from the turbulence generated by the aircraft. Once in place, an engagement arm would grab the X-61, drag it into C-130's cargo bay. However, during these October tests, the Gremlin drones were never able to mechanically engage with the docking station because the uh, according to them the relative movement was more dynamic than expected and each uh, gremlin ultimately safely parachuted to the ground uh, according to a news release they said all of our systems look good during the ground tests but the flight test is where you truly find how things work we came within inches of connection on each attempt but ultimately it just wasn't close enough to engage the recovery system Not everything went wrong during the uh, recent demonstrations, according to DARPA. Over three flights, each X-61 flew more than two hours, allowing DARPA to further validate uh, validate the drone's ability to operate autonomously. The agency also collected hours of data, which will help it to understand the aerodynamic interactions between the gremlins and the capture device, which program officials will study uh, to understand how the system needs to be modified. So... Uh, I feel like I'm on the spot here with Neil, but the air to air or mid air retrieval of, of, of other aircraft is not new. This has gone back all the way to, to the 1950s. We've tried to catch uh, imagery satellites. I, I think there's some great videos or 
I don't know about videos, but at least pictures of B-36s trying to catch um, some, some of the first jet aircraft with, with some kind of hook. And I know from an organization that I was part of, for a time there, we had a C-130 that had these scissors in the front where a survivor behind enemy lines could... Uh, My hook. Yeah, yeah. Could he, he'd throw up a balloon and this airplane flying as slow as it can, which was probably still 130 miles per hour, would, would catch that cable and the person would just fly up and somehow get retrieved. I don't think that ever worked. I think a couple of broken backs uh, was the end, the end of that program. Um, so there we go. We, we talked about this. Uh, DARPA, you know, is one of the leading advanced uh, research and development organizations here in the U.S. along with uh, some of the military labs. But uh, I'm sure they'll get this to work. They'll, they'll crack this thing. I mean, if you look at an agency of that size and capability, you're going to go through problems. Of course, you're going to bounce through things. Uh, you have an image of somebody hanging off the back of a, a deck of a C-130 <laughs> trying to catch this thing. and Almost got it inches away. Yeah. I guess the moral of the story is, A, don't feed these gremlins and don't splash them in water and you'll be fine. That's right. Not after midnight. <laughs> Carlos, do you want to take the next story? It's about the legendary Nighthawk. Yeah, yeah. Whenever I think about this aircraft, Armando, I always think about that film, Executive Decision. Oh, yeah, the one with the the tube that goes out the top. Yeah, no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) No, you've got it's a Kurt Russell, Kurt Russell film. You only need to watch the first like 30 minutes of the movie, and the rest of it is okay. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So this one on the WarbirdNews.com website and F117 on the move. Michigan's air. As new, uh, Air, Michigan's Air Zoo as a Nighthawk. Uh, Michigan's fabulous Air Zoo, Aerospace and Science Museum, known to many of us simply as the Kalamazoo Air Zoo, has been striving to achieve a rare feat in successfully negotiating the loan of a Lockheed F-117A Nighthawk from the U.S. Air Force. Although the Air Force officially retired the remaining examples of their 59 F-117As during 2008, almost all of them went into long-term storage, um, uh, Type 1000 storage, uh, within their original shelters at the, is it Tonopah Air Force Base? Uh, Tonopah. Tonopah. In Nevada. Uh, These stealth fighters, which gained fame for their remarkable achievements in 1991 during the first Gulf War, were a single strategic asset, even in retirement, and likely deemed too sensitive for public museums. What we didn't know for some time was that the U.S. military had secretly maintained a handful of the breed in operational condition, likely as test vehicles. Uh, they have been, uh, there have been a number of confirmed F-117 sightings since the first official retirement more than a decade ago, the first recent being in May 2020. However, until very recently, the only Nighthawks on public display anywhere were the four ex, uh, extant F-117 prototypes at uh, a military or manufacturing facilities. That all changed in the past year, however, with five museums receiving a formerly operational F-117A on loan, the first of these was the Ronald Reagan President, uh, Presidential Library, who's dedicated their pedestal-mounted F-117A on the December the 7th, uh, 2019. And the Air Zoo is the latest F-117A, uh, 85-0817. Uh, Shaba arrived disassembled at the Air Zoo's facility in Portage, Michigan, uh, this week. I think Matt's got some pictures of that as well on the screen. Uh, the Air Zoo... 
The Air Zoo is proud to announce, they said, the arrival of the, their newest aircraft over the last eight days. Air Zoo president and CEO Troy Thrash, along with a crew of dedicated transportation specialists, embarked upon a journey of 1,940 miles to bring the Aerospace and Sciences Center's new aircraft home to the Air Zoo, located in Portage, Michigan. Uh, this new plane is a stealth fighter, a Lockheed F-117 Nighthawk, tail number... 817 and nickname Shabba. Anything to do with Shabba ranks? No. Anyway, last year the Air Zoo was notified that they would be the proud recipient of one of the first Lockheed F-117 Nighthawks released for public display. The plane represents the US Air Force's first active military stealth aircraft and the Air Zoo team could not be more excited uh, to have been chosen for this honour. The Air Zoo is expected to be the first non-governmental facility in the country and the only museum in the state of Michigan to publicly display an F-117. The highly decorated Shubba, tail number 817, was transported on two trucks across the country. The truck carrying the wings and the tail fins made excellent time and arrived in Kalamazoo late Saturday on uh, Saturday night. The previous uh, precious cargo, I should say, was uh, unloaded uh, in the, the next morning at the Air Zoo's Flight Discovery Center. The Air Zoo team eagerly anticipates the arrival of the fuselage, uh, which should have arrived on Wednesday afternoon and plans to offload it on Thursday, uh, December the 10th. Uh, they will work with a team from the Tonopah Test Range to reunite Shabba's main components for display on the Flight Deck Discovery Center's exhibit floor on Thursday and Friday the 10th and 11th. Now, the Air Zoo's restoration team will work to recreate the aircraft's leading edges and paint her for display. That's always a good idea. Um, the Flight Innovation Center uh, should be ready at, towards the end of 2021. While under restorative care, Shabba will be available for guests to see close up and personal. Wow. Now, all we need is for one of these to appear at Duxford. Right. <laughs> Amen, to that. Amen to that. I mean, the Air and Space Museum here, interestingly, just got made a, a grade two listed. So it would be fabulous to get an F-117 in, in there oh, alongside wow. the SR-71 stuff. That would be really cool. Very good. And, and a TriStar just outside your window. Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never say never. These, these aircraft, from what I understand, especially something like an F-117, remains... Uh, property of the United States Air Force. They are on loan to these museums, usually for a really long time. But uh, <laughs> I think most of those aircraft there in the Duxford, uh, in, the, in the American hangar, um, I think an F-117, I'm sure they could find uh, find some room. They'll find from the ceiling. Yeah. Hang it from the ceiling. Like they've done before. Yeah. Uh, uh, Neville, I'm, I'm terribly sorry. I have some bad news for you. Go on. We, we, we don't have enough time for your military story. Oh, a tragedy. <laughs> as uh, Neil may have realised by now, um, military is dangerous as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, not dangerous in the you know, health point of view, but the yeah. fact is, I can, A, I can barely recognise any military aircraft at all, unless it's a Spitfire uh, or, uh, or something like that. Uh, but also, the pronunciation of some of these uh, stories that Armando uh, gives us. Uh, is extremely challenging. So um, that, that's why I think that uh, less ma military is good. 
<laughs> yeah, we're always very relieved when Armando is able to actually enjoy this because it's like it's like it's like it's like having a security blanket, you know. So when you're reading the story out and you think, nope, got no idea what I've just read out, and then able, Armando is very eloquently able to fill in the gaps, which we're eternally grateful as always. But uh, anyway, with that in mind, uh, Carlos, um, I just wondered if you could uh, tell everyone about the old the old um, caption Christmas caption competition. Yes, don't forget, we are running a Christmas caption competition. Uh, so if you want to uh, check out our Facebook page, there is a picture on there. And uh, we want you to send the funniest, most wittiest caption to go with said picture. I think Matt's... Uh, I'm frantically trying to find I should have done He's this. He's trying to find it. Yeah. I'll carry on. <laughs> Uh, your yeah. chance. Preparation is key, I find. <laughs> uh, the the one the one that makes Nev laugh the most will win a PTUK mug. So uh, we've got a picture that will be coming up very soon, and uh, we've got the uh, the start of the uh, said quote, which will be along the lines of Matt boarded his flight, took his window seat, and saw this. And his first words are. So if you look over, uh, check out our Facebook page. If you haven't already looked, it is on there. And uh, there's lots of, uh, already lots of comments been made on there already. And I was, as I said, the funniest comment chosen by the team uh, will win a PTUK mug. So there's the picture on the screen. You can all see there's a lovely chap there. He's uh, busy uh, putting some rather interesting tape onto the engine nacelle on this uh, particular, I think it's probably an Airbus, I would imagine. Yes, it, well, it looks like it might be an engine yet, but we'll gloss over that. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry, uh, did I say that? Yeah. Uh, but uh, yes, this is, uh, this is literally, essentially, what do you think are the words that, Mr. Terrified of Flying here, what do you think are the first words that may or may not have fallen out of my mouth uh, when watching a gentleman do this, as they say? It and the one that... Like, gosh, is that a CM56? <laughs> <laughs> A what now? Okay, uh, yeah, and basically, well, it's, it's not a Pratt and Whitney JT8 uh, 9D. Okay, all right, you two are boring me now. Moving on, there's uh, it's just like whichever one makes Nev laugh the most essentially is the one that will uh, be the winner, and uh, we're going to draw that on in the in the new year, aren't we? Yes, we're in the new year. Yeah. We're going to announce that one in the new year. Indeed. So get yourselves over to Facebook, check out the uh, picture, give us your wittiest uh, comment on what Matt would say. Indeed. Okay. Uh, right, uh, well, just, uh, just a quick mention of the social medias. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, we would love to hear from you. Uh, you can do that in several ways. You can start by going to the website www.plaintalkinguk.com. It's plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six is our WhatsApp number. You can send messages that come straight through to the studio here, and then we can share them with you and put them. We can share it basically with our wonderful audience, and we can put them up on the screen, on screen, etc., etc. Plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six we would love you to be able to send us some christmas messages our christmas uh, episode will be going out uh, over well next week now mm, next christmas week yeah. episode will be released next week uh, if you get them in asap to podcast at plain talking uk.com that's podcast at plain talking uk.com and you still could feature in the christmas episode with our amazing plethora of guest hosts it was a it really was good fun evening absolutely if you aren't doing so already then make sure you follow our social media it is ser- basically search your m- most social media platform for plain talking uk and uh, yeah you can follow us on instagram twitter and facebook we're on all of those neil uh, how do they find out more about your amazing project um easiest thing is probably through the website www.faradair.com 
Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. The company has a page on LinkedIn. The company has a page on Facebook. We are on Twitter as well. So, yeah, just basically all the usual areas and uh, keep your ears to the ground. So. Fantastic. Exciting days. It is exciting Excellent. times ahead. Thank you so much for joining us, Neil. It's been a real pleasure to have you on. As, this, and as Nev said earlier, to have someone talk so passionately about a project is just so refreshing in this day and age. So oh, thank yeah. you very much for taking the time to join us. Absolute yeah. pleasure to be here. And uh, yes, uh, if somebody is nominating me for standing duties. <clears throat> Right, yes, okay. <laughs> oh, excellent. We'll see. we'll see how the thing's going. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, definitely. Too right, up for that. Your, your name's on the list now, Nick. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Should have taken the blue pill. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, Carlos, wrap up as quick as you can, please, my friend. So that is where we're going to bring uh, episode number 300 and I'm scrolling up to the top because I forgot already. 349 to a clay. There's been so many. <laughs> 349 to a close. Thanks to everyone who's joined us in the live YouTube chat room this evening. Massive, massive thanks for taking time out of your Friday to watch and listen to the show. Also, not forgetting as well, everyone who downloads the show as an audio podcast, big thanks to you as well. Don't forget to, if you download through iTunes, give us a little review on now because we love that. Uh, if you listen to us and download us through iTunes or any other download platform, give us a little review. It all helps to push the show forward. And uh, yeah, that's it. A big thanks to Nev, as always, this week. Legendary, as always. Big thanks to Matt for being in the studio and pushing all the right buttons and sliders. And Armando, big thanks to you as well for joining us as well again this week. Always great to have you on. And not forgetting as well, a massive thanks to John, who does all our pre-production show work mm. as well before so we do the show. Yet, so much work goes into that this show. Yeah. So from me, Carlos, here in my home studio... And from Matt in the PTUK Master Suite studio, from Nev in his glorious Nev Tech studios, and from Armando in his Charlotte studios, and from our awesome guest, Neil. Have a great weekend. Take care, everyone. Stay safe, and see you soon. Take bye care, bye. everyone. Bye bye.